Good morning. Welcome to River Rock Bible Church. We're so glad you guys are here with us this morning. Uh, we are finishing our series on Everyday Church, looking at 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be there in just a minute if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles or find that on your phone, however you have that with you this morning. Um, as we've gone through this, this series, we've, we've kind of been looking at what is the model for the church. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced in my life that some things are, are hard to find, like car keys and sunglasses, and I tend to lose them in some of the most obvious places, like my hand or on top of my head. Has anybody besides me spent more than five minutes looking for car keys that are in your hand the whole time, or sunglasses that are on top of your head, and, and you just, you look for it, and you're like, it was right in front of me the whole time. Well, one of the other things that's hard to find at times is I talk to friends that have moved to different parts of the country. Uh, usually I, I follow up with them and just say, hey, how's it going? Have you found a church to get plugged in with? I know moving's hard and it's a lot easier when you've got a group of people that you, you just enjoy seeing regularly. And a lot of times I hear, what I hear is, well, it's so hard to find a good church. It's so hard to find a good church. And usually when people say that, most of the time, it's really just about their preference. Like, they didn't like the color of the wall, so they didn't go back, right? And, and it very rarely is it something major that, that's wrong. But I started thinking about that, and really what I think a lot of people struggle with is to find a healthy church, a church where maybe I don't like the color of the wall, but that's not important to me, right? And, and I started thinking about how we call church family, and that's kind of for a reason, because I don't know about you, but... With Thanksgiving coming up, I'm thinking about my extended family and how there's some dysfunction there, right? So every family's got a little bit of dysfunction. There's a little bit of that one person that you got that crazy uncle or that that aunt that has nine cats, you know, and and we've all got that little bit of dysfunction in our family, but that's why we're called family as a church because we're called to love each other in spite of all of those things. And so as we think about 1 Peter, Peter has been laying out for his readers, what a healthy church is supposed to look like and the mindset that they're supposed to have. So in 1 Peter 1, he reminds them, you are strangers, you are aliens in a foreign land that you, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to look different from the world and they're going to treat you differently and you're going to stand out and you're going to have to live life a little bit on the margin and that's okay. And then we saw in chapter 2 that we're called to an everyday community, that, that worship is not just something that happens on Sunday And church isn't something that happens on Sunday, but church is something that's supposed to happen every single day of the week. That's why we say we don't go to church. We are the church because we get together. We meet in community groups. We meet outside of our community groups. We meet on Sunday mornings. We also looked at um, everyday hope, having that everyday hope and what it means for us to look forward to the return of Christ. We last thing we looked at was everyday missionaries. What does it look like to live on mission for the gospel every single day? And this morning, we're going to come to this last section, and we're going to look at everyday leadership. And really, I think Peter has been laying out this whole idea of what a healthy church looks like. And I think he sums it up very well here in this last section when when he gets to leadership. And so, as we think about everyday leadership, we're going to see that there are three categories of responsibility. The first is the responsibility of the leaders. The second is the responsibility of those being led. And lastly, we're going to see that there is a mutual responsibility. Now, just to preface this passage, in 1 Peter 5, he's writing directly to the elders of this church 
that's in what's modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing to a group of men that have been charged with overseeing a church. They've been charged as elders, that's their title, of leading the church. Now, we are an elder-led church, so that means that I don't get to make all the decisions, which is unfortunate. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I don't get to make all the decisions by myself. I have a team of men, godly men, that God has raised up and brought around me. And together, we work together to shepherd God's people to lead this church in the direction that we feel God is calling us to go. If you want to know more about elders and exactly what that looks like, go to First Peter, uh, excuse me, First Timothy chapter three. Go to Titus chapter one. You can read about all of that there. But here's the thing: this morning, uh, I didn't want to just speak to you know those who foresee in their future that someday I might be an elder. I, I feel like what Peter is saying here can be applied a little bit more generally. Well. And while he's speaking specifically to the elders, we can draw out from what he's saying just some good general leadership principles on what does it look like to be a godly leader? What does it look like to be a godly leader, whether that's in the church, in your home, in your office, at school, wherever God may have you? How do I lead in a godly way? And at the same time, when I'm under someone's leadership, how do I follow in a godly way? And then what is, what is my responsibility? What is that mutual responsibility that we have there? So we're going to look at this, and we're going to apply it a little bit more broadly than just to the elders. But do keep in mind that this is written specifically to the elders of the church. And he says this in verse 1, chapter 5. It says, Therefore, as fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah, and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And I love how Peter starts this section. He appeals to them as a fellow elder. Remember, Peter is one of the 12 apostles. He's one of Jesus' 12 guys. He's in that inner circle. He's one of the top three guys. But he doesn't say, hey, as an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ, I'm commanding you. No, he comes to them in humility. And he says, as your fellow elder, like I hold this same office in my church over here. And and I came over here and started this church with you guys. So I'm appealing to you as someone who's in the same position you are. And then he draws their attention directly to his close personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is the first responsibility of any godly leader, is to have a close personal experience with Jesus Christ. When Peter says, hey, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, as one who witnessed Jesus Christ and is going to see his glory, he's saying, look, I spent time with Jesus. I traveled with him for three years. And as I studied under him, as I followed him, it changed my life. And I'm writing to you not out of any authority or any position that has been given to me. I'm writing to you out of of the heart of a man who's been changed by Jesus Christ. Just like we saw last week where Peter encourages them. He says, if anyone speaks, you ought to speak as if he's speaking the very words of God. And if anyone serves, he's to serve in the strength that God provides. So when I'm up here speaking, uh, I take this very seriously. I don't speak what is my opinion. I I strive to dig into the word and and what would God have me say. And at the same time, when I serve, I I have to fight it sometimes because I think, oh, I'm a good person. I can serve. I can do all of these things. But I have to 
serve in the strength that God provides. And in the same way, he's saying, look, my authority, it's, it's not from me. When I say these things, it's not coming from me. It's coming from Jesus Christ and my love for him and my desire to see his church flourish. And so whether you're a parent or a boss or you're leading at school, you're over an organization at school, uh, or you're teaching a Sunday school class here, or someday maybe even an elder here at River Rock Bible Church, the most important thing that you can have is a close personal experience with Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times when we think about that close personal experience, we think about a point in the past. We think about, oh, I trusted Christ when I was six. But really, what we see from Peter, what we see in the New Testament, is that it's designed to be an ongoing experience, that every single day we would have that close personal experience, that reminder of our own need for the gospel that Kenny talked to us about earlier, that we would be reminded of our own brokenness before God. We would be reminded that we can't serve, we can't lead in our own strength. We do have to rely on him. And we've got to keep the cross at the center of our lives. We've got to keep the cross at the center of our lives. And so I just want to ask you, you know, how are you doing in that area? How are you doing at spending time in the Word of God every single morning if you're in a position of leadership? How are you doing at spending time in prayer for yourself and for those that you're leading? How's that going? How are you doing at at actually sharing the gospel with the people around you who don't know Jesus Christ? Are you leading through close, uh, close personal experience with Jesus Christ? And the second question is, how are you leading others into that close personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you, are you encouraging them to be in the Word? Are you praying for them? Are you asking them about what's, what God is doing in their lives? Christ must be at the center of our lives because when we keep the cross of Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, it reminds us of our own fallenness, our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, and it brings us to the point of humility before God, and that leads us to the point of humility before man, and that is the right attitude that God desires out of his leaders. And what we're going to see next is that Peter encourages the leaders, the elders of this church, to shepherd with the right attitude. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, there's three words that are used in the New Testament. They're used interchangeably for the office of elder. The first is presbyteros, and it just means elder. That's the one that we typically see translated elder. The second is episkopos. Sometimes it's translated bishop, depending on your translation. A lot of times we see it as overseer. That's what we see in this passage. And then the last word that's used is poimain. And poimain simply means shepherd. And when it was translated into the Latin The Latin word for shepherd is pastor, and that's where we get our English word pastor. So really, anytime you see pastor or overseer or elder in the New Testament, it's referring to the exact same office. They're used interchangeably. So there's there's really, you're lucky. You don't have just one pastor. You've got five pastors here at River Rock. We've got five men on our elder board, plus we've got Stephen, who's also a pastor. So you've, you've really got six pastors. Um, and it's it's great to have that plurality of elders. Um, so really, when we think about those words, we think about elder, and that's kind of describes the office. That's the title of the office. And the other two, overseer and shepherd, describe the functions. So the overseer is the one who, who provides 
management. He directs the project. He directs the church. He's, he's overseeing, making sure that the church is headed in the right direction, that it's moving towards God, and that, that they can see what's coming down the road, and they're thinking ahead about where do we need to go, where is God calling us to go, and how are we going to get there, right? That's, that's the overseer. And then the shepherd is the one who comes, and he protects the sheep. He cares for the sheep. He leads them in the right way so that they can be fed. And I don't think it's by accident that Peter uses this imagery of the shepherd. It was a very familiar illustration in those days. Um, Everyone would have been familiar with with the shepherd. The shepherd was the one who walked in front of the sheep and guided them to the green pastures where there was food for them to eat. And then they ate, and then he would protect them. He would protect them. Um, We know from David's account that there were times when he would have to fight against the lion and the bear. And that's, that's what he says right before he goes to fight Goliath. He says, look, I fought a lion and a bear. I can handle this guy. And so the shepherd sometimes has to put themselves in harm's way. And there's a great effort and sacrifice that comes with being a shepherd. And in the same way, whether you're an elder in the church or you're a parent or you're a husband leading your family or you're, you're a manager at work or a boss at work, you're called to shepherd the people, that you would be guiding them in the way that would draw them closer to God, that you would be leading them to the point. It's not necessarily always your job to feed them, although sometimes you do have to feed them, but lead them to the point where they can feed themselves and also provide that spiritual protection. Sometimes that's a physical protection. Like in Peter's case, when he's writing this, there were Christians that were being persecuted, and that may mean as an elder of the church that he would have to stand up someone would have to stand up and physically protect God's people. Now, I I searched this last week for some images of shepherds on the internet, and I I found a number of of pictures, and it was interesting to me that as I looked at shepherds with their sheep, there was one thing in common in almost every single one of these pictures. See if you can pick out the commonality between these three pictures. Anybody have an idea? What do you notice? Where's the shepherd? I heard it over here, in the front. The shepherd is leading the sheep. The shepherd is in front. The shepherd is the one who is is there making sure if there's any danger ahead that he's out in front of it, that he's there to protect the sheep. And the sheep follow along. Uh, I'm reminded of of a story of a, a group of people from a church that traveled over to Israel. They were real excited to be there. Their tour guide met them at the airport and he begins telling them all these things, telling them their agenda, where they're gonna go and all this stuff and he was so excited. He said, one day we're going to spend uh, the entire day out with, with some of these Bedouins um, who are shepherding their sheep out in the desert. And you're going to get to see when Jesus talks about in John 10 that I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me because they know my voice. He says, you're going to see that the shepherds, they don't drive their sheep like they do in America. There's no dogs to drive them. There's nobody on horseback that's driving them. They simply walk in front of them and the sheep trust that they're being led in a safe direction. The sheep trust that the shepherd is going to protect them. Well, so they get out there. They get out to where they're supposed to spend the day with this herd of sheep. And they get off the bus. And he's reminding them again that, that our shepherds here, they don't drive the sheep. They walk in front of them and they sing to them and they talk to them. The sheep follow along behind them. And then everybody in the group starts laughing. Because coming down the road is a man with a giant stick and he's beating these sheep. He's hitting them as hard as he can. He's yelling at them and screaming at them, and they're all running in different directions, and they're laughing. 
And they said, I thought you said your shepherds here didn't do that. And he says, they don't. That's not the shepherd. That's the butcher. Right? And so we have to remember as leaders that we are called to be shepherds of God's people, not to butcher them. I think about Luke chapter 22 where Jesus gets up from the table at the Last Supper and he puts on a servant's apron. And he gets on his hands and his knees and he washes the feet of the people that he is leading. He serves them and he sets an example for us as servant leaders. He sets an example for us as servant leaders. And, um, you know, this past week I, uh, I had an experience. I, I love my kids. And, and for me, when I think about setting an example, as Peter says, set an example for the flock. Set an example for God's flock. And I, I think about that. There's two places it hits me really hard. And number one is my family, um, especially with young kids. And number two is here at the church. And I, I constantly find myself thinking, wow, if everyone at the church did this, what kind of church would we be? Or if my kids responded the way I just responded, what kind of kids would they be? Um, I love our little baby girl, Evie. She's the youngest. She's just over a year old. And uh, she loves her daddy. I walk into a room. She goes, dad, dad. Dad, 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 dad. And I love that she just chants my name. She still doesn't say mama very much, but she says dad, dad. But I can't be too prideful about that because she'll also point to her belly button and go dad, 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 dad. Maybe it's because I poke her in the stomach. I don't know. Uh, but, but I see that she's watching every single thing that I do. And, and something really hit me this last week with my son Malachi. Malachi uh, is, this is him right here. We're getting ready to go hunting together. He's a good-looking boy, isn't he? He sure is handsome. And uh, I'm sitting on the couch Thursday evening. I wasn't feeling very well, a little bit of a sinus infection. The rest of the family had already had dinner. I made myself a sandwich. And uh, so I'm sitting on the couch just eating my sandwich. And it's not really a big deal, right? Except when we first moved into our house, brand-new house, we said to the kids, made it very clear, you only eat on the tile in the kitchen. You do not take any food onto the carpet. In fact, we've trained the dog that he's not even allowed on the carpet. Sometimes he obeys that, but most of the time he doesn't. But the kids know that there's this invisible line, like, with food. Once I cross over the tile, then I'm not supposed to have food on the carpet. And I'm sitting there on the couch, on the carpet, eating my sandwich. And Malachi says, "Um, Daddy, we're not supposed to have food on the carpet. And my first thought was, well, I'll just tell him, you know what, I'm the daddy, I do what I want, right? That's... I'm a big boy, I can handle food on the carpet, but I realized that I was not setting an example for him that I wanted to be setting. And so I had to get up and I had to go into the kitchen and finish my sandwich in the kitchen because God calls us um, to shepherd his, his sheep. And what, our, what I take away from this is that it's a responsibility. It's not a privilege. And when we think about servant leadership versus the model of leadership that we most often see today, most often what we see today is there's the big guy at the top And all the benefits flow up to him, right? So he drives his workers so that production goes up, so that his bottom line gets bigger. And he looks like a great boss because we did more this quarter than we did any other quarter last year, right? But in servant leadership, it's the exact opposite. The benefits are supposed to flow from the leader to the people. That's servant leadership. That's servant leadership. And that is what Peter is calling the elders to here. Uh, the last thing that I noticed in this section here, he says, um, you know, shepherd God's flock. He's reminding them that these sheep do not belong to you. In the same way that shepherds in those days, they didn't own the sheep that they cared for. They belonged to a landowner. They belonged to someone else. The shepherd was simply hired, hey, make sure they're taken care of and watch over them. 
And he's saying, look, these sheep don't belong to you. They are God's sheep. They are God's sheep. And in the first service, I hadn't planned on saying this, but it just came up in the first service, and I'll do my best to get through this story. Um, But I was reminded uh, in the middle of my message of my very first child, uh, Eliana. And Eliana was stillborn at 26 weeks. And I can remember when we went to the doctor, and the doctor said, um, your, your daughter, uh, your child is not going to survive. And we didn't know when it was going to happen. We prayed that it wouldn't happen. At the same time, we prayed that um, God's will would be done. And you know, when we first found out, we had tried to get pregnant for so long, and, and we struggled and had a hard time. And when we first found out that we were pregnant, it was so exciting. And, and I said the things that, you know, every spiritual parent thinks they're supposed to say, like, oh, this is God's child, and we're going to raise it in a way that honors him, and he can do with it whatever he wants. He can make them be missionaries in China or, or send them wherever in the world that he wants. This is God's kid. He's not my own. I've just been entrusted with him. But the moment we found out that Eliana was, was not doing well and, and was not going to survive, uh, it was as if I heard God saying to me, I, I was upset and I was struggling with that, but it was as if I could hear God saying, did you really mean all that? Or were you just saying it because it sounded good? Did you really mean that this was my child to do with whatever I pleased to bring glory to myself? Or are you just saying that? And it was something that I had to wrestle through, something that I had to struggle through. And it's something that I carry with me even today that, that at that moment, that was when I was finally able to, pre- to pray, not my will, God, but your will be done. Whatever that looks like. And I've, it's something I've carried with me to this day with, with the kids that we have now, the four beautiful kids that we have now. And it's something that I carry with me into the pastorate as I think about being an elder, that, that I, would, I would understand what it means to shepherd God's flock, that these aren't, the people don't belong to me, that I'm here to serve them. I'm here to serve you. Your elders are here to serve you. As a husband, I'm here to serve my wife. I don't always do a very good job of it. But I'm trying. More and more, I'm trying to help with the kids. I'm trying to do the dishes because I want to serve her. I want the benefits to flow to her. I want the benefits to flow to my kids so that they can have a deeper relationship with God when they leave the house than I had when I was 18. We have a responsibility. Leadership is a responsibility, not a privilege. And we have to remember that they're God's flock. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to give an account for those that we lead whether it's our family, in our homes, in the government, wherever it is that we lead, we're going to have to give an account. Hebrews 13 says um, that those who lead uh, will keep watch over your souls as those who give an account, those who will give an account. And he, he's telling the people that, look, be reminded that those who watch over your souls are going to have to give an account. They're going to have to stand before Jesus. And uh, I, I came across this uh, from a writer this past week. He says, leadership whether in the church, the home, or the government, means that you're the one whom God holds accountable for the direction of things under your care. If that doesn't cause you to break out into a cold sweat, then you have the wrong idea of leadership. I can tell you that um, the the elders of this church, River Rock Bible Church, I know that they are men of prayer, and when we have big decisions to make, um, you can be guaranteed that we are fasting and we are praying over these decisions because we know that we're going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for how we have led 
his church. As a father, when I make a decision, when we decided to move our family from one city to another, and I was wondering, is this the right thing? Is this the right decision for my family? Because I'm going to have to give an account for how I've led them and how I've done this. That weighs on me heavy. And I don't know about you. I'm sure you've all had those moments where you've got a big decision and it keeps you up at night. And just the thought of that, uh, that responsibility that you bear begins to weigh on you just a little bit because you know that this is a big deal. And here Peter's reminding them that, hey, this is a big deal. He says, uh, he says in verse 4, he says this, um, he says, excuse me, 3, not, not lording it over those, uh, for verse 4, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now what he's saying is that this isn't a promise that just because you were an elder, that you get to have the unfading crown of glory. He's telling them, if you can do all these things, if you can lead well, if you can remember that you're, you're guiding, you're, you're protecting, you're keeping watch over God's flock and you serve them well, then you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But it's contingent on you doing a good job. It's not just because you held some office of leadership as a parent When you stand before God, God's not just going to stand up and clap because you survived being a parent. He's going to ask you to give an account for the way that you led your children. As the husband, he's going to ask you to give an account for the way that you led your family. As a Sunday school teacher, he's going to ask you to give an account. Hey, why did you only put 10 minutes into your prep time for your lesson when you're teaching a class of 10 kids about the gospel He's going to ask to give an account, responsibility. Uh, It's a privilege, not a leadership. Going back to Hebrews 13, the whole verse says this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that is of no benefit to you. And this is a really great transition into the first part of chapter 5, verse 5 in 1 Peter, where he says, in the same way, you younger men, be subject to the elders. Now, what we see here is the beginning of the responsibility of those who are being led, and that responsibility is biblical submission to leadership. Biblical submission to leadership, right? So that we would recognize that we're coming under someone else's leadership. And Peter here, he calls out the young guys for a reason, right? We all know uh, that it's the younger generation that tends to be the ones to think, hey, why aren't we doing this now? Like, we got to get on this. We got to do it now. I don't understand why we're not moving faster. I don't understand why we made this decision. I'm going to, you know, buck authority and just kind of go my own way. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but I love that poster that says, teenagers, please move out, get a job, and start paying your own bills while you still know everything, right? That's, there's kind of that tendency for the younger generation to think, hey, I know everything now. I can, I can do this. And so Peter's not saying that this is only for the young men to submit to the elders. He's saying, all of you submit, but especially those of you who are going to have that tendency to, uh, to buck the system and try to go around it because there's a structure here. And as we've talked about before, structure, when we looked at the family and we said, hey, the husband is called to lead his family and the wife is there beside him, but, but he's the one who's held ultimately accountable as the leader. And we said, this is, this is the structure, but that structure does not indicate value. That structure does not indicate value. The husband is not more valuable than the wife. And in the same way, those who lead are not more valuable than the ones they are leading. He says, 
he says for them to submit. And this idea of submission is that you are willingly coming under someone else's leadership, that you are choosing to place yourself under someone else's leadership. The way that I think of it is kind of like joining the military. When you go into the military, uh, when you enlist, you volunteer. But you volunteer knowing that you're going to start at the bottom and that you're going to have to come under somebody else's leadership. But you do it willingly. And you know that there's going to be structure and you know that you're not going to agree 100% with every decision, but you do it willingly. Uh, as, a, as we talked about this with our uh, staff this past week, we had a staff meeting that we get together every month. One of our staff members said, you know, this, is, uh, this has a lot to do um, with the reality that it's okay to disagree, but it's how you disagree that's important. Right? It's okay being submissive or submitting yourself to your elders, to your leaders, wherever that is, doesn't mean that you can't disagree. It's perfectly fine to disagree. It's just a matter of how you disagree. And what we see in Scripture is that when we have a disagreement, especially with those in leadership, is that we would go directly to the leaders, and especially in the church, to come to your elders and say, hey, I know we're doing this, but... I don't fully understand this decision. Can you, can you help me understand? Can you help me understand why we're doing it this way? Or whatever the situation may be. But what typically happens, especially in work, and a lot of times even in the church, is that I don't like the decision the leadership made, so I'm going to come over here to Bob. I'm going to lean over Bob's cubicle and say, Hey, Bob, do you know what they're doing over here? Did you hear about this decision? And Bob's like, oh, I can't believe that. So now Bob's on my side. Well, now I've got to go over to, to Sally and say, hey, Sally, did you hear what they're doing over here? Do you know about this decision that they made? Can you believe? Don't you see all the problems with that? And you start building an army against the leadership. Start rebelling in a way that is, is not honoring to God. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, uh, it says, there are six things the Lord's hate, seven that are de- detestable. And so what he's, he's using a literary device there to say, hey, there are six things that are, that are pretty bad. God does not like these at all. But this seventh one that I'm going to list is the absolute worst one of them all. And the last one that he lists are, is those who stir up trouble among brothers. That's the, the absolute last one on the list. That's the thing that God hates more than any other thing. Those who would stir up trouble among the brothers. So whether it's at work or here in the church or even in your own family, make sure that when you disagree, when you have a disagreement, that you're doing it in a way that's honoring God, that you would go directly to the source, and that you would go in a respectful manner to the leadership. The other thing about this is I encourage you to think through, when you have a disagreement, especially in the church, again, think through, is this a matter of biblical principle that's being violated, or is this simply a personal preference? Do I simply prefer the music louder than softer, and so I'm going to cause a big fight in the church over how loud the music should be, or I, I prefer hymns over praise and worship, and so I'm going to split the church and get people on my side because we want a church that does hymns, right? Is it a matter of preference, or is it a matter of biblical principle? And you'll notice that we said biblical submission to the elders. I probably could have worded it a little bit better, but submission to the biblical leadership Submission to biblical leadership. So if we said, hey, you guys bring us all your gold. We're going to melt it down. We're going to make it into a calf. And this Sunday, we're going to worship that. We would fully expect that you would not go along with that, right? If your elders said that, we would fully expect that you guys would not go along with that. But 
what we, what we do see is that when it's biblical, if it's not unbiblical, that there's a proper way to approach that situation and say, hey, I, I'm not fully understanding this. Can you help me out here? And do it in a way that's respectful rather than just going and flying off the handle because something didn't go your way or my announcement didn't get made or they didn't promote my ministry or they won't do this thing that I want to do. We've got to be respectful. We've got to remember that we are called to submit to biblical leadership. And the last thing that we're going to see in the second half of verse 5 is that uh, there's a mutual responsibility. And he says this, second half of verse 5, he says, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so we see that our mutual responsibility is to relate to one another in humility. And I love this because Peter begins this section about as humbly as he can. He had every right to say, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I command you to do these things. But he doesn't say that. He says, as a fellow elder, I exhort you to do this. I encourage you to do it this way. He doesn't pull rank on them. He comes to them humbly. And here at the end, he's wrapping things up. And he says, by the way, those of you who are leading... You need to be humble. Those of you who are following, you need to be humble. And unfortunately, even when our leaders are humble and those who are following are humble, there's this nasty little universal sin that never seems to go away called pride. That every once in a while it rears its ugly little head and we can't ever seem to get away with it. John Calvin said that pride is the chief vice of man. And the chief virtue of man is humility. Pride is the chief vice. Humility is the chief virtue. We've got to keep that humility in mind. It takes humility to be a servant leader. It takes humility to be a servant leader in the church. It takes humility to be a servant leader in your home. It takes humility to be a servant leader at work or at school, wherever God may have you. It takes humility to put the needs of other people ahead of yourself. It also takes humility to say, you know what? I don't have to be the leader this time. I will come under your leadership. And let me tell you, for, for someone who's the lead pastor, and there are situations where I'm not the leader, that's really hard. It's really hard for me because I'm so used to being the leader in certain capacities that I find myself having to remind myself, it's okay that you're not in charge. You need to come under this person's leadership. It's going to be good for you. And it's going to be good for them. And it's going to bring glory to God. That humility is key. The last part there is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. It says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now when it says God resists the proud, that literally means that God does battle against those who are proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Now I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything worse than being embattled against God. And I can't think of anything more necessary than his grace. I can't think of anything more necessary than his grace. And that comes through humility, that we must first submit ourselves to God before we can submit ourselves to one another. That we would humble ourselves before God, acknowledging our own brokenness, before we can stand humbly among others. We've been talking about the everyday church and everyday leadership, and we see that as leaders were challenged to shepherd God's flock well, as those who follow were called to submit to biblical leadership, but every single one of us is called 
to live and to relate to one another in humility. And I think if we can keep just that last one in mind, really what Peter starts with and ends with is that humility. And if we can keep that in mind, I think we'll find that this is the healthiest church that we can, we can find. We won't have to say, people won't have to come to Georgetown and say, hey, I can't find a good church. Because there'll be a healthy church. There'll be an everyday church. As we close and we prepare for our take two, I just want to encourage you to think through your own life. Think through the areas of your life where you are leading, where God has put you in a position of leadership, and are you leading well? And then I, I'd encourage you to think through those places in your life where you're being called to follow. God has you in a position where, where you're not the leader, you're the follower. And in those situations, are you following well in a way that honors God? And lastly, thinking through whether which side you're on, one side or the other, how are you doing it relating to others in humility? Thinking of others better than yourself. I just want to encourage you to think through that over these next two minutes. Write something down. Here's what God is saying to me. And because of what God is saying to me, here's what I'm going to do this week. Let's take two.